Today you'll meet my friend Robert Rabin. Robert and the 80 or so people who have joined him in the unique public policy firm he created in 2002 work to drive public policy in a humane and sensible direction to bring diversity and equity to the boardrooms, think tanks, and corporations of America, to create a fair judiciary, and to influence legislation that will broaden civil rights, reform our criminal justice system, and improve education for all our kids. I'm sure that from time to time, Robert says something that's off the mark, but it's kind of hard to imagine. He's smart, thoughtful, and a champion for doing what it takes to move our world in a humane, equitable direction. And I like to think that in this, we are kindred spirits. We could have talked about a million things today, but our conversation focused on nonprofit strategic planning and its relationship to the work of building a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive nonprofit sector. You'll find out why Robert compares strategy to love, the distinction between a function and a value, and why during great strategic planning, someone will cry. Have I piqued your interest? Trust me, you can't have a conversation with Robert that does not offer you an aha moment or lead you to some, consider something from an entirely different perspective. Now I know I have piqued your interest. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Robert Rabin has played every position on the nonprofit field. He's had big gigs in the public sector with roles at the highest level of the federal government. He cares deeply about the success of the nonprofit sector, providing consulting services to a vast array of organizations and causes, and he is both a serial board member and a serial nonprofit founder. Read through his detailed bio and the work of his firm in the show notes and see just what you can learn about Robert. He opened his own shop, The Raven Group, in 2002. His board experience, the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, the Unidos Action Fund, former President Barack Obama's My Brother's Keepers Alliance, and the Iraqi Refuge Assistance Project. Also, a serial nonprofit entrepreneur, having formed the Hispanics for a Fair Judiciary, the Friends of the Museum of the American Latino, Green 2.0, Committee for a Fair Judiciary, the March on Washington Film Festival, and the Pesos Graduation Ceremony for Latino Law Students. Please check out his firm website, therabengroup.com, and his more extensive bio there. Hey, Robert, thanks for joining me today and for sharing your insights with the folks in the nonprofit sector who are joining us today. Wow, Joan, what a blessing to be with you and to listen to that. I am sitting here beaming. I come from an enormous family and they have very divergent views about whether I matter in the world. So to hear that is just, you're making me cry. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's, that's what these podcasts are all about, really, is actually to let more people know about the great people out there. So, so Robert, I wrote this column for the Chronicle of Philanthropy, which by the way, that column that I write was informed by some advice I received from you. And the most popular piece I wrote was called Strategic Planning Sucks the Life Out of Nonprofit. As a result, I find 
that there's this dread that I don't really get because I really love great strategy work. And also because this attitude thwarts the ability of organizations to have real and lasting impact. So I'll open with a sort of a broad essay question, Mr. Rabin. Why do you think nonprofits dread it and screw it up? And what's the problem we need to fix in order to move our sector to really understand its value? I love it. And I'm going to jump in. But first, I do want to abuse the privilege of being on this incredible conversation with you by thanking you, Joe, for the difference that you're making in the lives of so many organizations, organizational leaders. You know, you've always cared deeply throughout your career about systems and public policy and fairness, and you've been fearless and that you're bringing all of that to bear in a forum that's so accessible and that so many people can rely on. I just am so grateful for you and to be a tiny pebble in your incredible stream of goodness. So why does strategic planning suck? I think there's two reasons people either understand it or they don't, and either can get you into a fear zone. I'll put a lens back for a second and say I've learned over the years that for those of us who care deeply about strategic planning, whether it's for our own families or navigating a trip or systems or not-for-profits, whatever you're sort of doing it for, we're doing an enormous disservice to the field by allowing amorphousness, elasticity, lack of precision to exist on what we even mean by it. Right. So, so sort of a meta problem is, huh, what do you mean? We'll get to that in a minute, but I want to directly answer your question. I think people dread it for two reasons, either because they know at its core, done well, you're asking existential questions about why we do what we do and is the structure on which we sit, the business model or the infrastructure of the organization that we're working for, well-equipped to do what we just said. And so if you're doing strategic planning well, it's hard. You'd also well, dread it. There's also you a, what you're describing too is also sort of a you have to lay yourself a bit bare, right? Only if you're doing it. And the other trajectory is I don't really understand what it means. All of the strategic, I'm you know I'm sort of channeling what I see more than fifty percent of the time. People say strategic planning, but what they're really doing is tactical. You get sort of into this conversation about who are we and what should we be doing. And at the end of a process, everybody agrees to open up an office in Atlanta, which is tactical planning, not strategical planning. And so I think the other reason people fear it is we don't have a shared definition about what we're talking about. But let's fix that. So a question for you, because I bet there are people that think that opening an office in Atlanta is a highly strategic thing to do. There's an underlying thing. There's something underneath open an office in Atlanta, isn't there? Well, people, and, and I love people, and I love my work, and over the years, with the help of experience, prayer, and Percocet, I've become exceptionally <laughs> more embracing and sympathetic at how confusing this work can be for people. And I fault the profession. I don't fault people. The opening up of an Atlanta office is a tactical decision. It is referred to as strategic because we've reached the point where the vast majority of people use strategic as a euphemism for smart. We're going to be strategic. When you see in a planning document three strategies, 
It's a flashing yellow light. And I want to say all of this lovingly because I think people are busting their ass to do the right thing. I don't think people walk into a conversation on strategic planning saying, I'm really going to mess this up. But just, I just want to be clear. I fault the profession. We've done a lousy job at being very clear that a strategy is the statement of the intellectual underpinning of how you're going to organize yourself to get to the place you want to be. It's the statement of the how or the methodology. The tactics are what you have to do to manifest that strategy. So if we're opening up an Atlanta office, that's a tactic. It could be in service of a strategy. We have decided that the South is the future for our market. Right. That would be a strategic conversation and we can go deeper on it. So when you say fault of the profession, are you talking about the sector, the nonprofit sector? Yes. And are we not, what are, what is the sector? How is the sector at fault? What this, what should the sector be doing that it's not doing to fix this issue? So I point to area of arena in public life and I'll stick to the United States, which is the only country I live in. I think the military is extremely clear what they mean by strategy, what they mean by tactics. I don't think you go 10 minutes in the United States military, the Pentagon, and all the subdivisions thereof with any real confusion about when we are talking at a strategic level, the how, and when we are talking at a tactical level. I think there are aspects of corporate America in which it is also preternaturally clear when we are operating at a strategic level, we are redefining a market. We are transitioning from, British Airways did this in the 70s, you used to sort of sell seats when you were flying from New York to London, United and Pan Am and Eastern and British Airways, I'm dating myself, they competed with each other on seats. And sometimes it was the size of the seat and sometimes it was price. But British Airways said, we're going to sell to the United States market an experience. We're going to have this faux British monarchal. We're going to have an arch accent and we're going to serve tea and we're going to let people up front off the plane first. What they did was convert a tactical move, the selling of a seat, into an experience. So the Mm -hmm. strategy was they've changed what they're selling. Mm -hmm. So corporate America, I think, done well in part because they have to compete on market share. It's sort of obvious whether you're winning or you're losing. And the military know the difference. In the not-for-profit sector, because we don't have ROI, because we don't have market share, when I'm a not-for-profit leader, and I say this lovingly, we are doing well if we say we're doing well And the supporters, the donors, the constituents agree. That's not an objective statement. There's literally no ROI. And so I think you're dealing with a sector in which the definitions of success themselves are much more elastic, much squishier. And in that context, there isn't a rigor about strategic planning and strategy in a way that markets and militaries demand. Um, do you think that forces are an issue as well? So I worked at MTV for years, 
and I had a strategic planning job. Like I was paid to do strategic planning. Do you think resource constraints are part of the issue? Sure. I, I think in capitalism, it's better to have money than not. <laughs> but I absolutely think, and at the risk, we're only 10 minutes into this, and I'm going to sound like a churlish screed, but I think the fretting about resources or the lack thereof in the not-for-profit sector is a much better, bigger issue than the lack of resources. What do I mean by that? Fannie Lou Hamer, who's one of the most important Americans I've ever known about and worked with others, but was a driving force between more change in our country than the vast majority of people who've ever walked the planet, including the recreation of what a political party should be, economic collaboration with pig farms and co-ops, working with others to create freedom schools. So Fannie Lou Hamer is an American revolutionary hero. She is credited, not credited enough, but she is credited with changing systems. I never met her, but I study her, as you can tell. Mm-hmm. I bet you she never once, in the 30 years of her activism and leadership, stared across the room and said, you know, if I just had that grant from the Ford Foundation, <laughs> I'd be able to bust open the Mississippi Democratic Party to African Americans. So... I continually think about Mrs. Hamer, which is arrogant of me to put myself on the same planet as her. I continually think about her because she's strategy first, tactics second, and support flowed from that. But we have this entire leadership of not-for-profit America where that's not the case. It's development first, resources second, tactics third, strategy fourth. In your description of Fannie Lou Hamer, Didn't she also have this clarity of vision and purpose that her North Star was wildly clear? And where does that fit in? You know, when I would do strategic planning, I would call it strategic visioning because I often felt that nonprofit organizations were not really clear about the destination. And that if you're clear about the destination, Like, I almost feel like it's vision first, then strategy, then tactics. And that you have to decide if you're going to go to Yosemite or the San Diego Zoo. you got to get people all riled up and excited about that. And then you start to think about what's the strategy to get there and then what are the tactics. And I, isn't that what Fannie Lou Hamer had, that, that we might actually, we're so focused on strategy and tactics that we lose sight of, I mean, I've seen strategic plans, uh, um, Robert, where the the strategy is growing revenue by 15% next year. And you just want to say, are you kidding me right now? That's exactly right. Everything you've said, it's not just Mrs. Hamer. It's it's Dolores Huerta and Phyllis Schlafly and Pat Schroeder. Just so many, what I've learned over the years, and it's been hard for me, and sort of therapy's been helpful. (laughs) Leaders require two symbiotic components, vision, as you call it, and execution management. Mm -hmm. And I don't know anybody, and this is a tautological fact, that excels at both. There are people who are good at both. But everybody I've ever observed as a leader has a strong suit. Right. It's either vision. You see around corners. 
you can motivate people, you have a driving set of values, which are semi-permanent, and people organize around them, they're inspired by them, and you know how to effectuate them, or management. And I'm agnostic as to whether the vision or the execution is the number one person at the not-for-profit. You can have successful organizations. But what too many not-for-profits do, not-for-profit leaders, is say my strong suit is vision. I surround myself with people who get me. Yeah. My chief of staff, my blah, 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 my deputy, my, my plenipotentiary, whatever it is, I too often surround myself with people who get me. And so we've got a lot of people on the strong suit and not enough on what I would consider to be my weak suit. So yes to what you said, that vision, which I would modify as saying values, Mm, okay. It's not just where you want to go. It's in the not-for-profit sector. What are the values we bring to it? Is it equity? Is it transparency? Mm. Is it ruthless pieces of shit that are going to win at any cost? I mean, you know, just, just know your value. And then the vision piece, which is where do we want to be? How do we know when we're done? Mm. What does success look like? And then you get to management. And management includes strategy, tactics, implementation, people. So... I found that when I did strategy work, I could be, there were criteria that I would attempt to curate in order to identify a client where I could feel like the resources they spent on my services had an ROI, did in fact have real value. And you must also curate your clients pretty carefully as well, because you want to add value to the work of that organization, right? So I'm not just talking about a mission that speaks to you, but I'm talking about what is it that you look for in a prospective client that says, yeah, this is going to be a intellectually stimulating, slightly disruptive process for everyone, and it's going to be awesome. What do you look for? I love that question, Joan. We do have a sense of humor clause in every contract yeah. we're in, so I, yes. I do want to make it clear that what does that mean? It's not enforceable. And so I actually I will... have something on my. If you come to work in my small but mighty firm, laughing at my jokes is actually one of the criteria. <laughs> exactly. You have See? to. You just you scored. You just scored, Robert. You have to. I do want to publish a list someday of the clients that have struck the sense of humor clause from our contract, which I find to be one of the most. But isn't humor isn't humor about joy? Yes, it's a joy. I say it's a marker for resiliency. Ah, which, good. Which is which is a bit of a stretch, but you know, I, I have a very different sense of humor than the hundred or so people I work with, and I don't walk around saying, unlike you, you have to laugh at my jokes. Rather, I I, I think the work we do. Much of the work we do is hard. Right. We work on abortion. We work on anti-sex trafficking. We work on obesity. We've got clients on death row. Not everything that we do is as compelling and draining as I just said, but if you come to Raven, you're prepared to work on stuff, which is tough, and you don't always see victory. Right. And so I just, I want people to sort of know that the work is important, but so is your four-year-old nephew finally figuring out her Legos. And I just, I think you're both better people and you do your work better. If at the end of the day, you remember, shit, this is about people. I forget the question. The question was, how do you curate? How do you curate? Carefully. Um, carefully. carefully. 
Well, I have gone through an evolution. I care deeply about strategy. Uh, and, and, and in part, it's an arrogance of the mind. It's like, hey, once I figured out what this means, I want you to do it. Or I'm narcissistic and I want you to see that I can do it. But as I've aged, the arrogance has mellowed, I hope. And I now, I curate for authenticity and fairness. By that I mean, I want the organization to be very clear with its board, with its staff, with its funders about what process we're about to embark on. So I said earlier that we have a real morass around the very definition of strategic plan. Right. And for some people, it's the core professional definition of what is my business model? What is my service delivery model? How are they feeding each other? It's the methodology and the how. And for other people, what they really mean is a tactical plan. How can I improve fundraising by 15%? In the beginning, earlier in my career, I was a bit what we call in the South Sadiddy about it. And if you said you were doing strategy and then not doing it, I felt some kind of way. It wasn't a good relationship. And I was very judgmental. Now, I want to do everything I can to help you as an organization do the best you can. Where on this continuum of what we call strategy, from the intellectual to the tactical, are you really? And can I help you position yourself as, be- as best as possible on that ladder? And wherever you land, I want to help you because I'll say something that took me years to learn. I think the vast majority of not-for-profits operate on a tactical level, but they're kicking ass. Right. The fact that they don't have the most coherent strategy doesn't mean they're not making the difference in the lives of people. Amen. And I'm about making a difference in the lives of people. So if I can help you tactically, let's do that. Yeah. But the curation work is helping you see exactly where you are so you're not confusing people, saying you're doing one thing and you're actually doing another. Talk to me about the role the board plays. So I have found that you can do kind of great strategy work and really come up with some real bold things where you really unearth some really important things that the board is not all that really interested in hearing. So if you want to move a board, if an organization determines and wants to go from point A to point B, for example, B is their thing, right? Well, you actually recruited a whole bunch of A board members right. who are, are kind of, we're kind of digging A. And I have actually found that I have had a good strategy thwarted, and I'm, this is not a board bashing comment. It's a kind of a reality that I, without not, I'm really having a finely enough tuned sense of where the board is in all of this so that the A to B change can be best navigated, so there can be buy-in, so that there can be enthusiasm and motivation. And I just wonder, clearly you don't, you might talk to a board chair or the head of the strategic planning committee to get a sense of their appetite for the work. I wonder how you have found the role the board plays in strategy and how you navigate that. I love that question. I think you're unearthing an existential problem that we have in the very diverse not-for-profit sector. I believe that it's a minority of boards minority of organizations that have a board which is itself constituted strategically 
By that I mean, I can point to some really high-end examples of organizations where you know exactly why you're on the board. The Human Rights Campaign for years has been a donor development fundraising board. They engage in policy guidance, but it's really run by a strong executive committee and strong leadership. The Metropolitan Museum of Art and most arts institutions, it's preternaturally clear what the role of the board is. It is to maximize development and networking for an excellent or good professional staff. After listing just a few examples, I fall off a cliff. There are legal organizations that have lawyer boards. I don't recommend it, but it's clear what the board is for, which is to serve as sort of a supra-legal committee Completely. Well, the legal staff. It's not a good idea, but you at least can stare at the board of blah, blah, I won't name names, and say, okay, this is a board which is really a legal policy committee. But what the vast majority of not-for-profits do in the not-for-profit sector is constitute a board, which is an amalgam of people who are expert in a particular function that the staff hopes will then be exercised on behalf of the not-for-profit. I really need a comms person. I really need a development person. I really need a Peloponnesian. We don't have any Peloponnesians on our board. Mm -hmm. And what you end up with is an amalgam of people who can't tell you as a group why they're there. Right. Because they've been curated sui generis. So sorry for the long windup, but you are asking a group of people who frequently don't have a coherent and unified sense of why we're there to now engage in a core intellectual function about the business or service delivery model of the organization they serve. What do you think you're going to get? What do you think you're going to get? So that's a dour assessment, but I actually think it is the majority of not and you have been on such boards, haven't you? Not naming names. I'm a terrible board member, I've discovered. When I was younger, I craved being on boards. It was, hey, look at me. I can be on your board. Hey, why don't you ever pick me? And then, praise God, people started to put me on boards. And I was very excited. And now I sit there like Mr. Magoo. Which is an insult to Mr. Magoo, but I'm sure he was more well-behaved than I. And I think to myself, why am I on this board? And I I don't don't want to just be unpleasant here, Joan. I want to say exactly what I mean by that, because I think it's a lesson, and I try to do it with my clients, but it's hard. Generally speaking, board service in the not-for-profit sector is both under and over-inclusive. What do I mean by that? If I, Larry, if I, Shirley care enough about your anti-hunger organization to be on your board. There's a specific reason. I'm passionate about something. It's frequently the case that person can't exercise that passion in a healthy way from the board level. And instead, they're spending 80% of their time on lease agreements and Larry's having an affair with Keisha on the senior staff and we have to go into executive session on that. Yep. Or there's a budget shortfall. So said in the positive, if you see somebody that you want on your board, 
you're going to do better finding a platform for her, which is not fiduciary. If she's fantastic at fundraising, over time, get her to be the co-chair of the development, ad hoc development committee. Right. If she's an amazing lawyer and you want her to work with your legal team, then create a support platform of advisory attorneys for your legal team. But putting people on the board because you think they have a function they're going to do from that board, is almost, it's like my dating life of, of years ago. It's sort of, it was all wishful and never actualized. It just doesn't pan out that way. Yeah. I also just think that the spun in the positive... Yes, that thank you. Executive directors and CEOs need to build. So you could you could potentially take a group of people who have desperate skills, but they all have a fire in their belly for your organization. And if you actually work and invest in creating some cohesion around that group of people so that their shared value and passion for the organization is fueled by the organization, then you got something to work with, my point of view. We do a tremendously good job of dimming the lights, the the pilot lights and board members by putting them through consent agendas and uh, other things like that are not fueling activities. Those things don't put gas in their tank and make them want to run screaming from the boardroom to tell everybody about this incredible organization and bring more people to it. Yes. Here's the great news that I think is going on in not-for-profits and other people see it in a more negative light, but I'm a buoyant about it. Younger people who have a different sense of entitlement about decision-making, distributed power, and information, I think are putting pressure on older leadership to confront and face these core questions of why do we do what we do? Why do we say what we say? Why, 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 why? And some of it comes across as unpleasant. Some of it is very hard, particularly younger people's willingness to use social media to communicate in what used to be internal conversations. But I have thick skin. It hasn't happened to me, but for other people, I have thick skin. And it's not like you're going to make that stop. You have to actually find the treasure in that. You have to find the treasure in that. And the treasure is they're holding us to our values. Right. We recruited these people, and if you're of a certain age, you raise these people as children, and you sort of sat at the dinner table and encouraged them to ask questions and engaged with them as little creative titans that they weren't, but you wanted them to be. And now they're in the workforce, and they're fantastic, but they're holding us to our value, and they're asking very hard questions about why. And I think it's great. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. Well, the word value is a good segue. And I just, I want to just really quickly just remind folks that we're having a conversation about strategy and values and vision with Robert Rabin, who is the CEO of the Rabin Group. He has his own shop called the Rabin Group that he opened in 2002. And he works with the public sector and is deeply committed to the success of the nonprofit sector. He provides 
consulting to a vast array of organizations and causes, and is a serial board and serial nonprofit entrepreneur. I want to shift the conversation a bit because I know about how you think about DEI work, diversity, equity, inclusion work. And when you began in 2002, my recollection is you did not have a DEI arm to the services that you provided to clients. And I wondered when you added it and was it the outcome of some strong strategy at the Raven Group that resulted in that? I love you. We, well, I'll say the pedagogical piece first, which is we crossed over years ago and embraced the notion that diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, the name sort of morph over the generations, are best seen as values, not functions. One of the sad underperforming facts in still much of American life is that so many organizations continue to see diversity, whether it's racial or gender or whatever it is, as a function. As I assign this over here to HR, it's about recruitment. Did we go to HBCUs to find the right people? That sort of thing. Those are all functional and they're very important. We can use the language tactics. You become joyous about this, and it makes so much more sense when you raise diversity into the pantheon of values, which are unquestionable in other aspects of your organization or business. So cleanliness, profit if you're a for-profit, safety. You know, there's a series of things that are so ingrained, at least in sort of sophisticated American organizations, I mean, actually, just to pause you, actually, I think you argue that strategy is also value, right? I think so. Yeah, I, I think thought so. so. Exactly I thought right. you thought so. Thank you. Thank you for telling me what I argue. <laughs> so it's the still a minority, but it's growing. The organizations that see diversity as the value, whether they see it in their supply chain, marketing, retail, internal, employment, procurement, board, marketing, messaging, whatever it is. Pepsi-Cola for years has seen diversity as a value. It is a business proposition. And it waxes and wanes and what they mean by diversity changes. So I just first want to set out, yes, diversity is best seen as a like strategy as a value. It's emotional. It's intellectual. And once you accept it as a value, there's no beginning and end. You sort of relax and say, well, all of the values that I care about, I love my family. It's a value. I want to be safe. It's never off the table. Right. It's constantly in conversation. And, it, and you can sort of relax about it because you're giving over to the fact that this is constant. I don't reach a point where my workforce is X percent women and therefore I can stop. Right. It's absurd. But that's so much of the language follows this track. So we crossed over some years ago saw diversity as a value, it is a proposition of how we're organized, and it is infused through everything. I want to pull the lens back. You've been very kind to say I'm associated with the Raven Group twice. I am. I'm very proud of the platform. I'm sorry it's named after me because there are 100 people who are more talented than me there, and I sort of get in the way of that. But we're an unusual firm in the private sector in that we're not organized around profit. We're organized around other values, diversity, right. social justice. And 
the business lines that we have, advocacy, lobbying, communications, coalition management, fundraising, diversity, all of those are sort of products or services that we put out there, mostly for the not-for-profit sector, although we do work with some corporations. Each of them makes sense if you see the strategy was we're in business to strengthen the not-for-profit sector because we care about power. We believe that power needs to be shifted to women, to people of color, to the disabled, to LGBTQ. If you believe that you have to change systems to do that, law, structures, capital markets, messaging, whatever, then you have to be in the business of strengthening the organizations that are voted, devoted to doing that, whether it's NARAL or the NAACP. And so each of our business lines is a tactic to fuel that strategy. We are in the business of strengthening the not-for-profit sector that is trying to shift power to women and people of color. And diversity is a function that we provide to Patagonia or to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, not because we make money off of selling diversity service. We do it because it makes them stronger and they're in the business of changing systems. So I have great joy when I talk about this because I think the through line is very clear and coherent. Diversity is a value, strategies of value. We try to get organizations to operate at the intellectual level and then we support them on tactics concomitantly if they're interested. And the end result is we get gay marriage in the United States. Right. Or we will someday codify Roe v. Wade through the United States Congress. That's what we're in the business of doing. Right, right. So it's it's important to be transparent and to say not only that I've known Robert a good long while, but that that my firm has actually retained the DEI arm of the Rabin Group on our DEI journey. And you actually described perfectly why it's a journey, right? I don't stop loving my family. Sometimes the journey is bumpy. Uh, <laughs> Not every day is the same. <laughs> Not every day is the same. But, you know, one of our, I mean, you can help me shape it, Robert. One of our values is that we also exist, both in terms of my own executive coaching as well as my membership site, which reaches thousands of board and staff leaders of small nonprofits. So one of my values, I could start, the leadership lab itself was started based on the notion that small nonprofits do not have, they don't have a champion in their court. They don't have an advocate. They don't have all the resources that they might need to have the maximum impact. And if we can provide that feels like a win for the sector, right? Because 70% of organizations have budgets under a million bucks, right? But I like to see us go further and say the vast majority of leaders of the leaders in our nonprofit sector are white, right? And to your point about giving more people power to people of color to, you know, to put that list together, that I believe that it's a val should be a value of ours to do what we can to support leaders of color. And I know that there's work to do. And it is, and I can just say really honestly, I was on a call for 90 minutes with your team today, sort of straddling that, that intellectual piece with the, okay, we have a hire we have to make 
and what kind of rubric do we put in place and what kind of foundational work do we need to do? I mean, it's, you have these meetings and then actually you feel a great need to find the Advil because it's hard. It's really hard. And so, so I wonder if you think, when you think about this is sort of, is the, a resource like ours that can potentially have an impact on the leadership of the sector is that a vision or is that a strategy? Yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, it's crucial what you're doing. And the sophisticated platforms, which yours is, operates at every level at once. It's vision, strategy, tactical. Right. And what separates the girls from the women is sort of when the leader knows in what plane she's on at any given moment. I'll make it even more gorgeously complicated because we love this stuff. If you're running an organization, which most of the people you're supporting are, or they're in their leadership, they're generally, and this is an analogy, they're generally leading on three different planes at once. They're an organizational leader, they're probably coalition leaders, and they're probably movement leaders. Yes. And one of the most sophisticated rubrics that good leaders have to always go through to sort of filter to mix metaphors when I'm making a decision, resource allocation, should I go to that press conference? Should I sign this petition? They're calculating in their head always, am I making this decision for my organization as part of an intersectional coalition or in my role as a movement leader? And that's the graduate school stuff. Yeah. So we're always as a leader operating in multiple planes at once, and you have to be dexterous. And I think that the work that you're doing internally strengthens your ability to help all of the people who rely on you. Everybody wants to be at a point, and they get to it in different ways, and I'm sort of open to the journey. Number one, what do we mean by diversity? It is not a term of art. In some places, I, we did diversity work for the BBC. I come in with a race lens, and they want to focus on sexual orientation and disability. Okay. We do diversity work for Airbnb. I come in with a race lens. You're getting a theme here. That's who I am. And they want to focus on extroversion and introversion. Their engineers are introverts and their marketing people are extroverts. And they clash in the cafeteria over the quinoa, blah, blah, blah. So diversity is not a term of art. Helping leaders figure out what they mean by that is core work. And then second, I think the most important work, Joan, that you're doing and needs to be done is helping leaders exp explicate why am I diversifying? Getting beyond the platitude, oh, it's important. Do I recognize that because my talent pool might be too small, I'm missing out on performance, sort of a networking issue? Am I trying for cultural competency? I'm trying to expand the work that I do in different communities and I need cultural competency? Am I avoiding lawsuits? Am I tired of my 24-year-old daughter telling me at the dinner table I'm really screwing up my organization because it's not diverse? These are the motivations that we deal with in the real world. And one of the most helpful things you can do is to help the leader articulate what her and her motivations are for the organization so yeah. there can be transparency. What frequently happens, particularly on the left, is we sort of utter this mantra, we have to be more diverse, but we aren't bringing into that conversation 
exactly consistent motivations. Risk litigation avoidance is very different than market growth, which is very different than I'm missing out on talent. Yeah. And you will stumble over each other tactically. If you, so you're doing the work right. It is done at a values level. A core question of the values is motivation. Why do I want to diversify and what do I mean by it? And then we move to a strategy once we figure motivation, which is how am I going to do this? Am I going to hand over my leadership to somebody else? And then I'm going to expand my leadership pool on the, at the organization and get away from the notion that three of us run it and there's no turnover. Lots of options. And then we get to tactics, yep. which is the how. Well, and I think that the conversation about motivation is one that you can engage your board in, right, in order to seek the kind of buy-in so that you avoid the, the box-checking, I have to have a person of color in the next cohort. Why? Right? What is it in the service of? And I think that's a big issue people face is that the staff feels like they understand, and maybe they do, maybe they haven't dug deep enough, but they haven't actually brought their board along for the ride. Absolutely. I had a core strategic meltdown years ago in my own diversity work. For years, I've been involved in the Hispanic National Bar, and I tried to get a Latino on every United States Senator's Judicial Selection Committee. So the fight was to make sure that Diane Feinstein and Chuck Schumer all had a Latino on their search committee. Right. And then I realized maybe 10 years into it, the unintended consequence of, for the committee picking judges, that Latino was responsible for picking Latinos, but all the white, black, and Asian people then abdicated the responsibility. And I had a meltdown. And I shifted strategies 15 years into it. And I said, I don't, I mean, I want Latinos to be on the committee, but that's not why we do this work. I want the white and the black and the Asian people on those committees to have a Latino consciousness. Yes. So they're selecting Latino judges. And so we can evolve as yeah. you sort of test out your values and your strategy and your tactics in the field and think, and you're confronted with, oh shit, that's not what I meant. I'll stop with the with my most Awful one. Yeah, when yeah Thurber, let's end with something awful, Robert. I love that. I love to end with something. Yeah. And then I will go watch something really dark on Netflix. Ozark. I just finished Ozark. Oh, my God. Oh, my Why God. Why didn't you tell me? Why uh, didn't you tell me? I don't so, believe you asked me. When Thurgood Marshall retired from the Supreme Court, we clamored to have him replaced with an African-American. The strategy was to have him replaced with an African-American. Well, George Bush picked Clarence Thomas who is in fact African-American. It's what most of us didn't mean. Rather than be mad at George Bush, you sort of go back to your value, strategy, and tactic drawing board, and you say, we didn't ask the right question. Yeah. We literally did not organize around the right question. We used proxies. Yeah. We used a tactic when we meant the strategy. The strategy was we wanted an African-American with a certain ideology and set of views, but we didn't say that. No. Either it was implicit or we were afraid. So it was an early lesson for me, and it's how values and strategy and tactics come together and why your work is so important. The safe place within the leadership of a not-for-profit so that you're supported, so you can make sure you have consensus around the values you bring to this work, 
there's an intellectual underpinning for how you're organized, that's the strategy. And then there are tactics that are consistently measured against that strategy. Not only do they work, but the opportunity cost of those tactics. You can have tactics that work, but the time doing the gala dinner sucks up all your energy and you're not doing a more efficacious tactic like starting the freedom school or whatever. Right. We must leave it right there. Yay! Yay! All John, right, you so, are a blessing. Thank you so uh, much for doing this. Likewise. Thank you so much for your time, Robert Rabin. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the work that you do. And we'll see you next time. Appreciate you. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.